And then right as we were about to explode and get signed to a major label, Rob decided to go work with Dieter Dirks, who was a producer of the band The Scorpions in Germany. Okay. And he quits and we get signed. I'm like, oh my God, what do we do? So Graham Bonnet and I were friends. And so we crossed paths. I think, you know, it was something like, hey, Chris, what are you doing? I was like, Graham, I'm bummed. My singer just quit. And here we are. You know, everybody's talking now about On this band. episode of Playtime, you know, my conversation with so guitar legend Graham, Chris Pelletieri, looking back over his 25-year career and the art of the shred, I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Quick announcements. Catch my conversation with Raven's John Gallagher, which is currently up and posted, as well as an in-depth piece from Pink Floyd's Lorelei and Durga McBroom. Also, by the way, Chris, uh, LA folks. This is going to be an LA month. I'm, I'm talking with, well, I'm, I'm about to announce it here. Uh, coming up later this month, a conversation with the bluegrass and folk artist from Chicago, Jared Rabin, on his follow-up to Cold Rain and Snow, titled Chasing the Light. We'll play exclusive cuts ahead of the album's release, plus a conversation with Americana and country artist from L.A., Carla Bonoff. That's all on the Playtime podcast, and don't miss my discussion about writing with purpose with author Alex Poppy on the Chicago Writes podcast, which is up now at chicagowrites.org, exclusively from the Chicago Writers Association. We may set a precedent here today for the first ever interview with a guitar shredding legend, Chris Impelitari, if Chris will indulge me, we will attempt to hold the first conversation, which doesn't compare Mr. Impelitari to Yingve Malmstein. Uh, no offense to Yingve. <laughs> uh, we, will, we will not speculate on his last name. It's Italian. If you don't know that, you really need to get out more. Uh, we will, however, talk seriously about music. Chris Impelitari has sold more than 2 million albums worldwide. His band by the same name, Impelitari, uh, that is. Impelitari's music can be found on iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, and YouTube, and also in my personal music collection, including the band's new three-CD compilation, Wake the Beast, the Impelitari Anthology, featuring Chris Impelitari on guitar, lead singers Rob Rock and Graham Bonnet, uh, as well as current drummer Patrick Johansson, longtime bassist, James Amelio Pooley, and a host of other great musicians. The anthology highlights an impressive career spanning 1987 through 2010 with songs gleaned from a dozen different impellitary releases over the years. Every song in this compilation was chosen by Chris based on what he feels are the highlights from 12 different impellitary releases over the years, which is just skimming the surface. The website is impellitary.com. Net, and I'll spell that I-M-P-E-L-L-I-T-T-E-R-I.net. After all that, Chris, I'm so sorry we're out of time, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well stated. Well, it was an eloquent interview. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> welcome welcome to the show, by the way. And and it, it's so great to have you there, even though I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of that weather and that view, man. Yeah, it is a lovely day in Southern California today. We are fortunate. But I, I will tell you, there are pros and cons to our weather. You know, I grew up in Connecticut. And uh -huh. so 
we were used to the the change in seasons in Southern California. It tends to be like Groundhog Day. You wake yeah. up and it's the same day every day. I mean, we've been in a drought. We desperately need rain, you know. So, well, you know, we're we're going into a season in which we have water, but it's all frozen. <laughs> so, I know Chicago well. <laughs> six of one half dozen of of another. Um, happy, by the way, happy belated birthday. You're uh, December, uh, September 25th, baby, um, which you share with my former radio co-host, uh, Playboy's Miss September 1990, also from uh, from Southern California, um, Miss uh, Miss Carrie Kendall. Oh, well, well, happy birthday, yeah. Carrie, as well. Yes, yeah. September 25th is a good day, with the exception of it was also the day, sadly, that John Bonham of Led Zeppelin passed. Oh, my gosh, that's right. I, I, I forgot that I still have somewhere the the tickets that we got and then the letter that followed the tickets for for a show here in Chicago for for that tour that said sorry and uh, due to the untimely passing of Mr. Bonham the concert has been has been canceled and then oh, wow. and and then a refund so yeah I I, I totally forgot about that I so, just always try to throw that in there because I love John Bonham he's great he's he he he's he's a he's a classic a legend as you are brother but speaking since 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 we're deeply into into southern california here robert barry uh has been a, a guest on this program several times a number of times uh he jokes that i almost know more about him than he does um which is where uh i was this week about you i came across this the name Impellitari. Most Impellitaris came over from Italy in the late 1800s. This is according to, to Ancestry.com. There's a reason I'm, I'm going here, by the way. And, and I came across a Salvatore that was born in Ansonia, New Haven County, Connecticut, uh, where, where you grew up on uh, September 23rd, uh, 1908. But this I found really interesting. In 1940, Half of the men with the surname Impellitari in the United States of America were listed as musicians. I didn't know that. So, so I, I know, I know that you lost your parents uh, at a very early age. But how much do you know about your your heritage? I honestly don't know a lot. I mean, so I grew up. Um, in an area called Ledger, Connecticut. Okay. Um, most okay. people don't know where that is. So I, I try to explain to people, it's look at it this way. It's like about an hour and a half from New York City and an hour and a half from Boston, right? And it, it's okay. very close to being on the water. So, you know, there were a lot of Impellitaries where I grew up, but I wasn't born Impellitary. I was actually born Hughes, right? So my biological father who died years later, I never knew him, right? Because mm -hmm, my, mm -hmm. my mother remarried when I was one years old and they mm -hmm. adopted me. But having said that, so, you know, the biological father was evidently 100% English. My mother, her mother, which would have been my grandmother and my grandfather, were both 100% Italian for my grandfather and 100% Russian for my grandmother. So I'm wow. actually equally English, Russian, and Italian, you know. So, but, you know, the impellitary thing, I, I mean, I knew a little bit about it. And, you know, this mm -hmm. is a funny story. I didn't realize that I guess it would have been my great uncle was actually the mayor of New York City, I think in the 1950s. Wow. And, and the funny story, you know, the, the way I found that out 
Impelitary's first concert in Japan, we were playing a 65,000 seat uh, stadium. It's called the Tokyo Dome. But we were playing with other artists on our label, which was Sony Music. Uh-huh. Billy Joel was headlined. Okay. And Billy, I don't know, he heard me play. He really liked our band a lot. So we ended up hanging out with him for a week. And him and his manager one night goes, hey, Chris, are you any relation to Mayor and Pelletieri? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, look. And, and they told me the whole history. I didn't know anything about it. So it was actually Billy Joel <laughs> turned me on to that. I was like, wow. Uh, he, he seems to be dropping a lot of news. We, we had uh, Tori DeVito on, who uh, uh, a member of his band uh, was her dad. And uh, and he announced on stage her birth. I, I I'm I'm still trying to to picture Impelitary and Billy Joel on the same stage. <laughs> it was a great concert for those people. I'm sure. Well, I'm <laughs> sure it was unique. Uh-huh. Heavy metal and then great pop. You know, Billy actually told me he was in a hard rock band. Um, I think in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of fascinating. But this has been many years. I'm just recollecting because obviously to me, Billy was like, wow, this is amazing. It, it's not nostalgia. I mean, this guy was a big part of our childhood, you know? Yeah, yeah. Standing in the pouring rain, When did you pick up the uh, the guitar first? I started playing, I believe, when I was twelve years old. Okay. So did it? Did I hear correctly that that the passing of a, probably your mother or your parents led you to play the guitar or to to sort of throw yourself into the guitar? Sure. Well, I will say this: I look back. I mean, because people feel very uneasy when they ask me these questions. Remember, it's been many, many years. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will tell you, my story is kind of like the tragedy, the triumph, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I mean that respectfully and humbly, Mm -hmm. you know, basically when I was nine years old, it, it, what happened really was, all right, so my mother, the first marriage didn't work out. My mother was insanely good looking. And I mean that humbly again, I mean, she was just genetically, she had, she was very, Mm -hmm. very beautiful, you know, but the men in her life were, were kind of, you know, they were problematic. So the biological dad, it didn't work out, whatever. So my mother divorced him. She got remarried to a guy that was basically a tennis pro. He was abusive, just mean to her. And I don't know, she just kind of gave up lost sight and she committed suicide. And then, and then it was three months later. Then now the, the stepfather who actually had adopted me, right. was my father at that point. Right. Then he committed suicide. 
So it was like it was like almost one of those stories where I went to bed one weekend happy and I woke up the next day as an orphan, you know. Wow. So my grandparents were awesome. You know, they were young. I love them so much. They were just, you know, I owe them everything I have in life. But they took me in and, you know, they gave me a choice. I mean, and they yeah. did it in a loving manner. They weren't me, but they said, look, you can live with us. We want you to live with us, blah, blah, blah. Or you can go live in an orphanage or a shelter, mm -hmm. you know. And so anyways, I, I made the right choice. Um, obviously, they embraced me. But they also realized because of the tragedy, they thought this kid needs he needs something to express himself emotionally. Yeah. He needs an yeah. outlet. He needs he needs a goal, a purpose in life. So my grandmother took me to a music store. And I'll never forget, I went into the music store and on the wall, there was a copy of a Gibson Les Paul custom in black. And there was a copy, when I say copy, these are cheap brands, right? Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. copy of a Fender Stratocaster. Now, most people to this day know me for playing like Fender Stratocasters, Roll Charvels, right. but I actually told us the Les Paul. <laughs> wow. And she basically paid for me to have guitar lessons for like five or six years. And I just became addicted. I realized I could use the guitar to express myself emotionally. You know, mm -hmm. all that rage and that anger in my heart and that confusion and frustration, it came out through my playing. Wow, that's that, that's brilliant. So is is that how you came to? Because shredding entails a number of different techniques and and skills, not not the least of which is speed. It requires a, a, a proficiency in a number of, of playing playing skills, sweeping, tapping, uh, alternate strings, all, all, all that. Uh, is is that where you where you began your shredding style or or experimenting maybe with with shredding? Initially, no. I mean, okay. initially, I had to learn music theory. You had to, you had to um, yeah you know you had to understand how to apply various scales: harmonic minor, diminished major, minor. You know, like yeah. you, you go on and yeah. on. You'd also have to learn how to play in, in odd time signatures. You had to learn how to read music. Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. thing that was really fortunate for me is I had a guitar instructor. His name was Mark Mandel, and he was an amazing guitar player, right? This would have been in the, like, um, gosh, it must have been around 1976, 77, mm -hmm. somewhere around there, mm -hmm. you know? And and he really, I mean, he was listening to guys like Pat Metheny, but then he yeah, listened to, like, Richard yeah. Blackmore and these fusion guys. And, and, you know, so when I started playing, you know, I was playing, you know, like, most kids i was playing rock music anything that was really influencing me and i with the first bands that really excited me we heard stuff on the radio it would be yeah. like the heavy side of queen deep purple thin lizzie i loved you know mm -hmm. gary moore
So we were doing a lot of, of that type playing where, you know, you were playing, for the most part, a lot of pentatonic scales. Yeah. And, you know, you'd play a lot of blues-based stuff. And then it was, I don't know, a few years later, I started being exposed to guys like Al Demiola, John McLaughlin, you know, Paco DeLucia. And I was like, what is that? And I'm still pretty young, uh-huh. right? And so that intrigued me. And so I started to kind of learn. And, and there were some local hometown guitar heroes yeah, that were much yeah. older than me that were already kind of doing that stuff. And I was able to sneak in the clubs and watch them and pick their brain. And eventually it became very much part of my musical repertoire. This is a, a bit of a diversion, but but it, it, it sparked my, my curiosity. Your, your guitar instructor who loved Richie Blackmore, were, were you able to, to, to play with Graham Bonnet, who was, who was also uh, with, uh, I, I believe he was with, with Richie Blackmore, right? Yes, he uh, was. Did, did your instructor ever know that, that you ended up playing I, I, with? I'm going to assume he must have. He must yeah. have. Yeah. Cause I think, yeah. he, I think to this day, he probably still follows the band. Oh, no kidding. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and uh, I, I kind of want to give folks a little bit of a context of of guitar shredding uh, and and a bit of a history about it. And and I, I'd love you to weigh in here as well because I think I think a lot of people who aren't necessarily familiar with it or or uh, or comfortable with it have have a very skewed perspective that it's just fast, loud, you know. Uh, frenetic. A lot of folks cite Les Paul's uh, "How High the Moon," which contains um, examples of of sweet picking, which is, is a character uh, of uh, Shredder. Dale die in the in the 1960s with the with the surf sound um, his song uh, Mr. Lou is probably the most iconic Think that it goes back to pioneers like Django Reinhardt. The early, no, the earliest known piece that I was able to find, which which I thought kind of fit a number of the criteria for for shredding, uh, was a song called Lighthouse Blues from 1935.
King Crimson and Robert Fripp, Steve Hackett with Genesis, Richie Blackmore, who we talked about, uh, Eddie Van Halen in the late 70s, Pat Metheny, who, who you talked about, and and Yngwie Malmsteen, which we're not we're not comparing comparing. We're just we're citing. It's it's an evolutionary art form. Am, am I correct in that? Yeah. And and you know, again, you probably want to start with the the composers yeah that utilized a lot of um i want to say used various modes or mm-hmm. various scales within their compositions i mean mm-hmm. if you want to talk about speed i can simplify this to the average user normally i would bring out someone like vivaldi or paganini or, or you know the artists like that the composers okay but if you want to really simplify just google It's by Beethoven. It's called Rage Over a Lost Penny. So Rage Over a Lost Penny by Beethoven. Listen to that. Okay. He's flying. That's shredding, <laughs> right? Of course, he's doing it with a piano. So, but, you know, a lot of that, that, um, that classical influence rubbed off on many artists, even long before me. I mean, there's a handful of us that really get credit for starting shred, right? It was first Ingve. Uh, I think there was a guy. Yeah, it was definitely Paul Gilbert. There was me. There was mm-hmm. Tony McAlpine, uh, mm-hmm. a guy named Vinnie Moore. There was Michael uh, Angelo. I mean, there were a lot of guys that kind of got credited for it. And to be fair, I mean, in Pelletary, we were probably the band that that used shredding and all of the, you know, the classical influence yeah. in kind of like speed or power metal. Yeah. Right. We were probably one of the first bands to do that. Mm-hmm. But let me give credit where credit's due. If we're going to talk about who started on guitar, mm-hmm. my advice, everyone, is just go on YouTube. And Google John McLaughlin, 1973, and you'll see there's there's probably a little thumbnail or a picture of him playing, sitting on a chair by himself, playing an acoustic guitar, and he's playing in front of like two or three thousand people at like maybe a jazz festival or something. Uh-huh. Watch him play. If you guys think we invented shred, you're crazy. <laughs> John McLaughlin was doing, and he was doing extremely well. I mean, he's a major influence on me as is Aldemiola and Paco. So. You know, they should really get the credit of really the original tracks.
it's really an evolutionary art form, and and it is it is truly an art form, and there there are there are specific skills and and exercises that you do in order to in in order to to better your your playing technique and and to evolve that art form, right? Yeah, it really becomes you rely on muscle memory. I practice to this day. I probably still play eight hours a day, and it's because yeah. I love it. Yeah. I truly love the guitar. But, you know, I also want to understand, I want to make a point for, for your listeners. Please. You know, listen, Impelitary, we're a metal band. This is not the Chris Impelitary ego solo guitar show or instrumentalist. Mm-hmm. Impelitary has always been a band with four to five guys equally contributing, yeah. you know. And, and now we have had interchangeable members at times in history. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the core of the nucleus has always been the same. And so I'm just the guitar player. And when we we create our music for the band Impelitary, mm-hmm. it always has to start with a great riff, right? A riff, something that's memorable, something mm-hmm. that once the listener hears it, it becomes annoying because you can't stop singing it. It's like going to Disneyland and hearing It's a Small World and the thing won't get out of your head. <laughs> you know? um, so we try to always start with an amazing riff and then we, we begin the composition. We write the song. The guitar solo it's like the icing on the cake without a good song and a great riff. Mm-hmm. It's worthless, right? It's just showing off or showcasing. Although, yes, I know I'm, I, I've certainly been branded, you know, one of these shredding guys or these fast guys, even though, yes, even to this day, I, I often, you know, have a lot of very fast passages in my solos, but at the same time, I'm always thinking about the melodic structure. Even if it's a yeah. fast solo, it has to have a strong melodic base to it. You know, it has to complement the song. And I hope, you know, that's what I accomplish. conversation with um with bassist uh john gallagher from raven who asked me to say hello by the way he was he was kind of downplaying his contribution to the band talking about his brother mark who who is the guitar player and and is is kind of the de facto leader somebody needs to lead but everybody needs to play together but their their sound is so tight and and on stage it's tight as well if if that if that bass line is off, if that rhythm line is off, then the whole the whole the whole piece is thrown. The whole band is thrown. Good on you for for highlighting that ensemble essence. I was thinking about this all week. We're, we're, we'll, we'll change the subject here a little bit um, without sounding too much like a moralist uh, or an analytical nerd. But your song titles are pretty mainstream. That is, they're dramatic, tough and contextually 
uh, genre oriented, but never really delve into the occult uh, or, you know, kind of devil the the uh, thematic uh, um, imagery. Your songs and lyrics, I feel, are meant for serious music listeners, adults, and well-adjusted adolescents, by the way. I think you're right on the money, to be honest. Yeah. You know, our music content, you know, I, I mean, remember, uh, you know, I, I always start with writing the music and then the guys yeah. contribute. Yeah. Rob Rock, our singer, he writes all the lyrics of the melodies. And in the past, we had Graham Bonnet in the band on a couple of records and tours. Graham was the one writing all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might initiate a melody, say, look, this is what I'm hearing. Because when I'm writing music, yeah. there's always something in my head that I'm, I'm kind of it's kind of guiding me like, all right, yeah, we're in a verse. Yeah. All right, we're going into a pre-chorus. What am I hearing the vocal do? So I have to share that with the vocalist, right? So they yeah. kind of can understand where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm, Sometimes mm -hmm. they use it. Other times they, they have a better idea. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would say you're right on the money for that. I don't know if they're, how, what the question was specifically for that, but I would agree with kind of where you're going with that. I, I think you nailed it. <laughs> where, wherever the hell I was going, I think you nailed it. <laughs> Um, but uh, since, since we're on, on on the ensemble aspect of this, Rob Rock has has a deal quality and range at times um, that seems an ideal fit for your band. You said uh, he, he he writes he writes most or all the lyrics. If you guys weren't on the, on the same page, at least ideologically or or creatively, uh, that 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 mix wouldn't work. You you sort of have to find that groove and that and that niche with with rob and and the dio comparison i'm thinking of bleed in silence off of eye of the hurricane which is on the new anthology on your original 1987 self-titled ep right that's correct yeah and and he was also in your in your first band vice was that how you guys were introduced yeah i met um rob rock i was actually loaning some of my equipment to greg allman from the greg allman band or the okay allman okay in connecticut greg was playing a show they needed some equipment so, you know, I lent them the equipment. I remember I was I was backstage at the show that night, uh -huh. went on Greg's tour bus, said hello, blah, 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 did the courtesy stuff. Then I went out to the club for a few minutes because I was going to leave. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I remember seeing this band and it was and it's interesting. Rob Rock is, is Rob's surname. It's his true birth name. 
but he gets wow. embarrassed by it. Yeah, he gets embarrassed. People think, oh, he's what a stupid last, you know, rock and roll, you know, stage name. And Rob is embarrassed. So he as it turns out, it couldn't be a better name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but so he actually had a band called the Robert Allen Band. Okay. And they were doing okay. covers and original music. And I remember seeing him and he was amazing. I was like, who is this singer? He had this it, this tremendous range, mm -hmm. beautiful angelic vibrato, you know, looked yeah. great. Girls loved him. And I remember meeting him after after the show and we spoke. And within three days, we we're at that same venue in the daytime wow. rehearsing. And, and immediately there's just instant music chemistry. So you know, we we formed a band called Vice, uh -huh. and we were basically doing in New England. We were doing like this club circuit where we play covers and original music. We yeah, were playing six yeah. nights a week, and we probably did it for about a year or two. And it was really important because Rob and I were were being inspired and in learning music from other artists at the same time we were growing as musicians. Right, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it was almost like we were going to the same school together, and, and so it really helped us years later when we started writing original music professionally because when i write music i almost always know what rob's gonna sing before he even does it wow wow yeah, it's crazy we have that kind of connection yeah, yeah. and it's because that... of that that when we were kind of like in our early years right mm -hmm, of, of mm -hmm. development right we were learning from the same sources being taught basically by the same teachers right so that really gave us a competitive advantage so how much of an adjustment was it when when he left and and you brought in Graham Bonnet, how did that connection or that relationship begin with with Graham and, and you? Rob Rock and I, with the Impelitary Black EP, there's Rob Rock, myself, mm -hmm. a drummer named Lonnie Silva, who was an amazing drummer, bass yep. player named Ted Days. Yeah, That was really the initiation or formation of Impelitary. And we wanted to okay. establish okay. who we were going to be sonically, which, to be honest, when I listen to that record, and it's one of my favorite records, albeit it was done really cheaply. We had no money. We basically put up a couple of, of really nice, like almost like room mics and just mm -hmm. went for it and almost performed live. And we just captured this amazing energy.
that record kind of established the sound, the foundation, which, yeah, yeah. you know, people, you know, it's like people have said in some ways, we almost sounded like we we're somewhere between thrash and speed and power metal with all the technical, crazy classical guitar solos. And then, you know, the screaming vocals, but then the really beautiful, like three part harmonies, like something yeah. here in Queen or Boston. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the fast double bass drumming. So we established the sound and we, we started really getting a lot of attention in places like Japan and Europe. You know, even the, the cult magazines in America were really starting to follow us. Mm -hmm. and, and then right as we were about to explode and get signed to a major label, Rob decided to go work with Dieter Dirks, who was a producer of the band The Scorpions in Germany. Okay. And he quits. And we get signed. I'm like, oh, my God, what do we do? So Graham Bonnet and I were friends. And so we crossed paths. I think, you know, it was something like, hey, Chris, what are you doing? I was like, Graham, I'm bummed. My singer just quit. And here we are. You know, everybody's talking about the band and, you know, now what? <laughs> so Graham had just ended his band Alcatraz, which, you know, mm -hmm. it got mm -hmm. a lot of attention in Japan and Europe. It, got, it started to take off, at least when I was in California, it's very popular here, you know, in the Hollywood scene. But he disbanded Alcatraz. And so we decided, well, let's see what we could do together. And the first song we wrote was a song called Stand in Line, which became the title track. For me because graham was this legendary vocalist especially in the rock and heavy metal community right right you know people don't realize when he was in rainbow they headlined this thing called castle donnington which today is called download festival mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was i don't know three hundred thousand people you know even i was watching an interview recently with iron maiden uh, bruce dickinson the singer yeah and, and bruce was talking about he was at that show and he was talking about graham and it was interesting because ACDC played before Graham and Rainbow, right? Okay. So to okay. kind of set the stage of how popular he was. So when we did stand in line, where I'm going with this long story, sorry. No, that's um, great. What I'm trying to say is I didn't, I was uncertain that I could write the way we had begun with the Impelitary Black EP uh -huh. with that type music with Graham. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of forced to say, no, let's do something more like a tribute to Rainbow. Now, I love Richie Blackmore, certainly a big influence, but you know, Impelitary was much more technical. We played much faster and, you know, all that stuff. So I was like, I don't know if I can do that. So let's try doing more of a tribute to Rainbow. And really, that's what we did with Stand in Line. It, it was seems a like you guys kind of kind of met in the middle on that on that album. Yeah, it was a little uncomfortable musically for me because, again, okay. I, I was I was kind of ripped out of my comfort zone. Yeah. You yeah. know, my I mean, listen, anybody that listens to Impelitary, Listen, I don't know, listen to our recent record like Venom, right? Mm -hmm, you hear the mm -hmm. sound. It sounds very much like the Impelitary Black EP, just with a much bigger production, right? Mm -hmm. and, and most of the albums around Stand in Line have that. And eventually, Graham, there's another story, would come back years later. 
And then I did exactly right, right. what I should have done in the first place. But stand in line served its purpose, you know, especially in places like Japan. Song stand in line was right song at the right time. And the band yeah, just exploded. Yeah. Then all of a sudden we had this massive, you know, following. And it just it, it gave us a career. It's a great album. I had it in my collection as uh, as an LP, as a vinyl LP for for a number of years. Um, wow! I, I I had my first studio apartment. I had a wall of of albums just lined up end to end. I wish I had a lot of those now, but that was one that was one of of my favorites. It was it was a great. I thought it was a great album. Yeah, I give I I listen when I listen back to that record. I think Graham Bonnet is the star of that record. I've had people say that that, that might be his greatest vocal performance, although I love the Rainbow record in the early He just has that. such a dominant voice. Yeah. I mean, it gives me chills. I remember. I remember when we first cut Stand in Line. I remember the studio we're at. I remember the people that came in, some of the other big artists that came in and listened yeah. to the music. Yeah. I remember it just it gave us chills. I mean, it was... It was like, wow, listen to Graham sing. This is this is why he's a legend. I mean, if you ask yeah, me, yeah. and and people may get angry for me saying this, and I'll throw Rob Rock in there too. You know, I think the two impelitary singers we've been very blessed to have between yeah. Rob Rock and Graham Bonnet, and certainly Graham as a legend. Mm-hmm. I think he's equally as good as Ronnie James Dio, equally as good as Bruce Dickinson, equally oh, yeah. as good as Rob Halford. Oh, I could yeah. go on and on. Yeah. Graham is is he's just got that that thing that that identity that that unique voice no one sounds like graham and look i've worked with some of the greatest singers in the world i'm not gonna you know get into in depth but i've Mm -hmm, been in the mm -hmm. studios with the guys like the dios of the world or people like that right yeah yeah. and i have never heard another singer be able to project the power that comes out of graham's voice at least when he was young right because when we did stand in line graham was in his 30s still i've equated to the power to try to convey this if you've ever been to a zoo and if you've ever heard a lion roar, mm-hmm. it's terrifying, especially if you're close. You, you have no idea. Oh, my God, how can an animal make that create that much power? That's Graham when he sings. You're like, how is that even humanly possible? So you went from stand in line with Graham Bonnet. Then again, you're down a singer. How did how did you how did you come back to that that next album with with a new singer? Well, Rob Rock comes back. So it was right. actually it was quite easy. Okay. Um, it was it was another emotional time because, you know, like I say, in the Impelitary Black EP, when that released, mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. of a sudden we were in the guitar magazines and the rock magazines. And, you know, yeah. all of a sudden we created this cult following around the world and people were talking about us. And, you know, it was an exciting time. Stand in line. It was similar to that. I remember I remember the last show we played in. Um, we, we flew back from Japan. We played in the United States. Mm-hmm. We, we, we did a co-headlining show. We played the San Jose Civic Auditorium, which is probably somewhere between three to 5,000 people. Mm-hmm, totally mm-hmm. sold out. Amazing show. We co-headlining by, you remember the Pat Travers band? Pat Travers? I certainly do, yeah. yeah. It was Pat Travers and Impelitary. And I remember we had a killer show. It was just amazing. Wow. And so we went back to Los Angeles. Graham was having some marital issues, unfortunately. Mm. And so he had to get on a plane, go to Australia. And I'll never forget, this was another one of those, oh, not again. <laughs> You know, Graham goes back, which which I applauded. I mean, do that. Save your family. I get it. Yeah. So yeah. he goes back and our manager calls us. We have really good news for him. We're like, what? We're going to give you the end of the Iron Maiden tour. You start in Florida. And all of a sudden, all the tour buses, everything's getting arranged, the crew. Wow. And we get a call from Graham going, I, I can't come back. I've got to save my marriage. Yeah. We were devastated, but we understood. 
-hmm. So that was the end of that particular era with Graham, you know, after all the success we had on MTV and, you know, Japan. And so then Graham comes back and it's like, ah, that really comfortable glove, it just fits. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was very much like that. Good that you're not resting on your uh, your Animetal USA glory days. Um, <laughs> but seriously, that was what was that was that an interesting diversion for you? You put out two two albums, and and, and is there going to be a number three? I will tell the truth. Uh-huh. So Sony Sony Music Entertainment hand selected each member of that band. Mm-hmm. They wanted to create that. I hate that 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 silly supergroup term, right? But that's what yeah, they were trying yeah, to do. Yeah. So I think I was the last guy. I mean, they started originally, I believe, with uh, Rudy Sarso. You know, uh-huh. Rudy was obviously well known from Ozzy Osbourne, White yep. Snake, Quiet yep. Riot, legendary bass player. So they started mm-hmm. with Rudy, and then they brought in, um, I believe it was Scott Travis, who's the current drummer of Judas Priest. Okay. They brought in Mike Vissera, who in Japan was really well known because he had been uh, a singer in a band called Loudness, which was a massive, very successful Japanese metal band. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they were looking for the Guitar Hero Kid. And for some reason, I don't know why, but they selected me. So... At first, I was kind of on the fence, like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, um, I just, I've never strayed from my own band. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I've just been loyal to it. I love it. And I don't really need to do anything else. So, yeah, yeah. but they approached me and then I, I, I don't know, something <laughs> intrigued me about it. You know, I'm always, I'm always interested and in, in challenged by complexity and music and arrangements. And when they presented it to me, they said, this is what we want you guys to do with Animal. You're going to be doing famous anime cover music, mm-hmm. but we want you to write original music and blend it. And the challenge was, if you listen to how Japanese composers write, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like a complete opposite process yeah. than the way we would do it in, you know, in the United States or America or Westernized. So, mm-hmm. for example, you know, with us, we'll write a riff go into a verse, have a pre-chorus, then the big chorus, repeat it, maybe do a bridge into a solo, and there's a formula. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With the Japanese composers, they never repeat. <laughs> so the music was really complex because you'd have to write, you'd have to chart everything out. And okay, I even okay. had massive massive charts. We were playing some arenas. I had massive charts on the floor that I was reading while I'm playing. Wow. So, But anyways, so we do the first record and in japan even rudy said it was massive 
it was like and rudy's been in like he's like what is it called lightning has struck three times for rudy sarzo right <laughs> he's 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 with ozzy when ozzy explodes right with randy Rhodes, crazy mm-hmm. train right arenas all that stuff then he is quiet riot becomes what that knocks thriller off becomes the number one first number one metal record yeah, or whatever yeah. right and then he does white snake during the biggest time of white snake's career and mm-hmm. so in japan rudy was already predicting Animetal was going to be huge and have a big run. I was on the fence. I was like, ah, I don't know about this. This is a little crazy, a little strange for me. But, you know, at least in the beginning, he was right. I mean, we were on TV shows like the equivalent of like Good Morning America. And, and it was great because it brought a lot of attention to us individually as musicians. Yeah. Uh, you know, to audiences otherwise wouldn't know us. I mean, I was doing an interview yesterday and the host said something about and he brought it up and it realized in Japan, I think they said there's something like 120 million people. You know, when you're on their most popular TV shows that even look as a metal band, I don't care if you're Metallica or whatever, you're not going to be on half these shows because, you know, they're not going to cover that. Yeah. But when we were in Animetal, they were covering all of us. So it was it was an interesting time. The first show we did, it was in front of 18,000 people. And then we went, we did some headlining stuff. But I will say this, you know, where I knew it probably wasn't going to go much further. Mm -hmm. The the management team and the label thought this is going to be big around the world because mm-hmm. anime has a very strong cult presence it does yeah so i'll never forget it we um were playing in los angeles at this big anime convention and i think there are probably a hundred thousand people at the convention but it was it was one of their big kind of arena type venues okay and you know i mean it would probably hold maybe five thousand people roughly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i remember just scratching my head going i'm a metal kid I, I love your ambitions, but I just, I just, and outside of Japan, I don't say it's going to fly. So we do sound check. We have this massive stage set, you know, lighting, the rigs, everything. And I got to be honest. So we walk up the ramp to get on the stage, you know, and again, you're thinking, all right, well, let's see what, what we can do. Is there going to be 5,000 mm-hmm. people waiting for us? I would be shocked, shocked. If there were 400 people. Wow. Wow. But, you know, I, so, I, I, I sort of, you know, I, I used to work in Germany and and my wife is is from Europe and family in Europe. There is a, a, a completely different mentality from marketing and advertising and media and and music and the arts and how all those things come together in Europe than there is here. And I used to, used to work logistics for Asia, so I I was in Japan and in in Australia and in, um, and there's there's a much different way of communicating. So anime in in Japan, you can correct me if 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 I'm if I'm not right on this, is is a culture. So it's it's music and it's it's media and it's 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 merch and and all that. And here it's anime that that's it and the people the people who like anime don't necessarily translate to to the music side and i i, I just remember this years ago the uh the ceo of uh of coca-cola in in belgium there was a, a an issue with uh with coca-cola in in europe and being an american he said well you know what this is how we're going to fix it i'll buy everybody in in europe a coke and here everybody would go okay buy me a coke in europe they thought he was being a smart ass and sales plummeted and it it feels it feels like executives got caught in the middle of that with uh with animal usa 
and, and the uh, and the festival that you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, so in Japan, the executives are right. I mean, we were playing massive venues. Yeah. I mean, we were just the fa- the amount of TV shows we're talking again the top rated TV show in their country. Uh-huh. You know those kind of shows. I mean, you know, how often are you going to be on like a Good Morning America, right, or the yeah. Nightly News, or, yeah, you know, ABC, NBC, you know, stuff like that. It was just it was surreal. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. And, and by the way, you're right. In Japan, anime is a culture. People think yeah. anime is cartoons. No, Mm-mm. you go to Japan. I mean, it's it's really in depth. It can be, of course, going to have the superhero mm-hmm. elements. Certainly, a strong part of it. But it also is a cultural. You know, it, it's significant to them culturally, yeah. right? I mean, people don't yeah. even realize. Even with anime, I heard they even have like pornography in anime, which like mm-hmm. what? I didn't see any of that. But <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's theatrical. It can be dark. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be positive. can be moralistic. It can be it can it it can talk about uh, it, it. It can be subversive. So there, there's a lot of different aspects to it. Yeah. So, but you know, it was it was a wild ride. I mean, Rudy Sarzo and I and and Mike and we eventually had a touring drummer. It was a guy named John Deddy who had played with Slayer. He okay. eventually came in, and you know, look, we had a lot of fun. It, it, I think it was yeah, three yeah. years of our lives. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times Rudy and I are on a plane flying to Japan or. You know, flying back and here we go again and back and forth. And, back, and we spent so much of our time and so much together. Wow. You know, we, we all built a pretty strong friendship and bond. And it was it was wonderful. But, you know, like I say, it, it, it and if anything, it helped all of us in Japan get even more popular and mm-hmm. more well known mm-hmm. because we already had our audience. Right. We had our core audience that that embrace and love our band we call Mm -hmm. them part of our extended family right Mm -hmm. um so with anime it just brought more attention to the band which is even more amazing for us so i I just want to continue with that very briefly and then we'll we'll talk about the the new anthology here uh before we let you go on on the marketing side a number of your albums impelitary is not a household name here in the united states you're known, but it's it's not, you know, it's not an Eddie Van Halen automatic go-to. A number of your albums were sold as U.S. imports, as, as imports in the U.S. here, uh, which made them really prize collectibles for your domestic fans. Was that a marketing decision on your part? Meaning that the records would have to be brought in as imports? Meaning that there was that there was a benefit in in promoting impelitary the band by making those records collectible from oh. outside the u.s actually that's genius now that you <laughs> that you mentioned that <laughs> no we, that wasn't our our like a strategic initiative no okay um what happened was look in the late 80s now impelitary like i said we started off we were borderline like this thrashy kind of speed metal with beautiful vocals and yeah, technical yeah. guitar solos and a crazy drumming yeah. we established that sound and it was really difficult for people in the industry and the media to figure out how to even brand us what, who do we fit with we were never part of those hair bands we could never be part of that right even mm-hmm. though yeah we had the hair but we were just <laughs> not part of that scene nor do we yeah. want to be yeah but at the same time in the late 80s that type of music and even a lot of the you know the, the more aggressive metal it slammed into a brick wall mm-hmm. all of a sudden mtv wouldn't any longer play the music videos radio started to change right their formats and from a financial perspective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a lot of these bands were in big trouble for rob and i i don't know if it was fate god luck talent i don't know what it was 
but because of what we we had built with the black ep and stand in line in japan Mm -hmm. it set up what was coming okay the next couple of records okay and by the time we were into like victim of the system and answer to the master we were on the covers of the magazines we were winning you know Uh readers poll type awards we were selling out all of our concerts Mm -hmm. but america they certainly were not embracing our type music and we had discussed with some of the major labels in America about releasing our music, mm-hmm. but they were treating us like the Black Plague. So it was, and, it was the labels. It wasn't. It wasn't the fans. It wasn't the audience. It was. It was the. It was the labels. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's interesting too. And it really shows you, especially in the United States of America, it's really not how good you are. It's do you conform to the flavor of the month, or yeah, it's, it's yeah. who you know. It's who you know, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I'll tell you a funny story. I've told this a few times. Mm-hmm. When we were doing the Answer to Master Tour, we were playing in Tokyo, and we had sold out the first three nights at this venue in Tokyo. Three mm-hmm. nights in a row, sold out. And I remember we flew over. Our road manager, I think, was he was part of – I don't know if he was a road manager or part of the crew guys for Def Leppard, and they were down. Okay. So he flies over. He's well-connected. And the band Bush, who were huge in America, Mm-hmm. And I think really popular at that time on MTV and in mm-hmm. Europe. And I think he mm-hmm. even married, what's her name? Gwen Stefani or whatever, the singer. Our road manager goes, hey, we got a couple nights off since we're coming in early. Let's go see this Bush band. They're playing at the same venue as Impelitary. Mm-hmm. It's like, cool. Okay. And we go to go get ready for the show. And the road manager calls up and he goes, hey, guys, show got canceled. And we're like, oh, well, okay. We'll go to dinner or whatever. He goes, what happened? And according to the road manager, what he told us, he goes, they couldn't sell any tickets. And we're like, well, now there's an interesting disconnect for the powers to be in America, right? Who control everything. It's yeah. like, here are your, your poster children your poster of children, the moment yeah. who are selling millions of records in America and Europe and are a great band, by the way. I really like them. They're good, mm-hmm. but can't sell enough tickets to play the venue. And here we sell out two or three nights in a row. Wow. And, and in Japan, you know, it's interesting too. Japan, I believe the music does the talking. Yeah, you yeah. can't convince people because there's a language barrier. So you got to do the music. So, but but anyways, when we were in Japan, I remember the mm-hmm. label took me to a record store. At that time, a popular place would have been like Virgin Music or Tower Records is really big at that time. Yeah, and they and they said we want to show you something. And remember, what they were trying to do is say, just focus on Japan for now. Don't focus on other countries. Uh-huh. And here's why. So they brought me into a Tower Records and they showed me. And at this time, I think. Metallica just released their I don't know if it was their load record or one of those records and there's the record is and in Japan if you convert the yen to the dollar it was about twenty five dollars twenty four hundred twenty five hundred yen whatever Mm -hmm. so it was about twenty five dollars roughly and they said now I want you to show you something they walked me about 20 feet in the same store to the import section and oh my gosh there's Metallica's load and if you converted the end of the dollar it was about twelve dollars and they said, what's, what's going to happen is if you release them in America, they're going to kill us with imports. And your type music at this time in America is not being embraced. It's better. Don't slap the hand that's feeding you because we were selling a ton of records. They said, look, we'll just unfortunately, they own the mm-hmm. master. So we'll just Would do you- it through exports or whatever, which was it felt it made us feel bad because yeah. A lot of our fans are paying like $25 or whatever for, for yeah. by the time it got to them, right? Yeah. Same story, but on the other yeah. coast. But ultimately, it's probably why we were selling a lot of records in Japan, because a lot of that stuff probably was going out through export, which means JVC Victor, our, our label, who's with mm-hmm. us to this day, which is yeah. unheard of. 
we signed that deal around 1990 or 91 and we're still with the same and they're a major label in japan so i've got a buddy named johnny bergen who's uh, uh who's a blues guitarist uh and just put out an album called uh, no border blues which he he recorded with uh with japanese blues blues artists and we were we were talking on on the show about the the viability uh, or or the popularity of blues and his response was they are they are so starved for um for for western art for western music but that that blues music which which rock and roll is a derivative of and and that that rock music that hardcore rock music even um they are they, they just eat it up and and i i think i think that is part of part of your success where you have these hardcore uh fans of of one genre or or another uh of of western or american music do you agree with that and yeah. japan. japan is very westernized i mean when you go to yeah, impelitary yeah. concerts there yeah. i've seen like you know these beautiful blonde girls in the audience from Sweden, <laughs> you know, you're like, what are you doing here? Germany, uh, all over uh, the world, uh. very westernized. There's a fallacy, you know, people in the late eighties, I used to hear artists jokingly say, Oh, well, if you can't be big in America, you're certainly going to be big in Japan. That's just not yeah. true. Yeah. You know, when we went to Japan, it was highly competitive, mm-hmm. you know, and let, let's, let's be realistic. You know, when Rob returned to the band and, you know, the, the end of the eighties had, had come to a close mm-hmm. in in Japan, we were now competing for the covers of the magazines with bands like Pantera and Metallica and Ozzy. Yeah. You know, yeah. the bands that were, you know, were much lower in level that, you know, might've had a lot of success in America. Mm-hmm. The majority of them failed. They just mm-hmm. didn't connect with, with the Japanese audience. What was it about so, Impelitary that connected so strongly with the Japanese audience? I can tell you what I truly believe to this day is the secret of our success in Japan. I mean, there are, mm-hmm. there are multiple factors. Mm-hmm. It began with that Black EP. All the musicians immediately braced us. They started calling, I, I hate using that term, but they started calling me like the guitar yeah. hero and yeah. blah, blah, blah. They loved our singers, Rob. When we did, we did the record with Graham Bonnet, I think it gave us this free pass Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. almost like a quick track to a little bit more success because graham had played with richie blackmore who was this legendary guitar player from deep purple you know like smoke on the water all that stuff and then he played with michael shanker right who was a legendary guitarist then he played with ingve momstein who became Mm -hmm. another legend then steve vai and then me so Initially, a lot of the the media and the audience they had so much curiosity on who is Impelitary. Oh, interesting! You know, just because Graham joined my, you know, our band, uh-huh. right? So all of a sudden, they threw me in with those legendary players, whether I deserved it okay. or not, right? And so that gave us a strong foundation. And then from there, I think the secret to our success is in Japan. Impelitary is probably viewed as almost maybe at times maybe like a power metal band. But at the same time, they also threw me in with the Ingves and guys like that because of the way I play guitar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in Japan, remember, Japan is a very educated culture or an educated society. Society, yeah. So yeah. when you have guys like me that, you know, to do what I do, you have to master music theory. You have to master your That's, instrument. It's yeah. not easy to do what we do, right? And so I think the fact that our music conveys a lot of that, 
we also are also smart enough to write in a simplistic manner yeah. where girls girls can embrace our music, right? A culmination of those kind of factors that I just kind of spoke with, spoke yeah. of, yeah. really gave us that that launching pad. And and I guess to this day, while you and I are speaking, why this band mm-hmm. is still somewhat popular in Japan, I think that's probably why. wanted to get to to the new uh to the new compilation wake the beast the impelitary anthology is it an addendum a follow-up or refocusing to your uh 2002 very best of impelitary faster than the speed of light what was the uh what was the the uh the algorithm i guess for following up with with an anthology so the band, as you know, obviously, um, we've had a ton of success in specific countries. Yeah. Right. And that success has spilled over into many other markets that our music was not being distributed in. Yeah. yeah. And so a portion of this was really due to legalities. Like we weren't sure if we own masters. Right. So we had to be certain mm-hmm. at a certain point that first of all, we could retain ownership that we mm-hmm. own these masters. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, once we were, we had that, that it was definitive, right. Yeah, yeah. We can do this now. We immediately came up with a goal of, all right, let's now at least initially put together our fan favorite music, create this anthology find a label that's going to be passionate about the band because we could have gone to the Warner brothers of the world and all those companies, but we wouldn't have gotten any attention. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, our manager found global rock because we're already, I mean, we're still signed with frontiers for Europe and America and we're Mm -hmm. signed with JVC Victor for Japan or all of Asia, Australia, Mm -hmm. all those places, Mm -hmm. but the back catalog is not in those territories. So our manager found this label who just really loved or seemed to really love our band embraced us. Yeah we basically started picking what we think are our fan favorite songs and assembling them. Mm-hmm. And then we just immediately came up with a plan of distributing this and promoting it. Because remember this music that people are hearing in the United States and certain places in continental yeah. Europe, yeah. this is brand new to them. They don't yeah. know anything about impelitary. You know, some of these people think impelitary is a disease, you know, they don't know it's this metal band. So it's a great compilation cities on fire uh, bleed in silence that we spoke earlier uh, about is is a great great song yeah our fan favorites over the years i mean look 
we open up the record <clears throat> and, and we do it intentionally to have the opening track be victim of the system, yeah, which has yeah. Rob Rock, our singer. And it really kind of it kind of immediately kind of slaps you with like this is who Impelitary kind of is. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then we go into the second song, which is a song called Perfect Crime which is the legendary singer Graham Bonnet singing, right? Mm-hmm. And so we put, we utilized a lot of music from from both singers, right? Singers, right. And at the same time, we also did stuff, because we have a very large following from diehard musicians, right? Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. put instrumentals like 17th Century Chicken Picking. There are probably a thousand kids around the world that have posted videos on YouTube of themselves <laughs> playing it. It's a very difficult instrumental to play. So we really wanted to keep the record you know definitive of what is the core sound of the band yeah what are the fans yeah. that have embraced the band what do they love over the years so we're exposing this to a new audience they immediately kind of get what we're about And one of one of my favorites is uh, is also on this. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, we were talking. You you mentioned Tower Records, uh, and and I th- I think this dovetails into into your popularity and and finding you. First of all, uh, do you miss record stores? There used to be in, in Munich, Germany. There was great underground, literally underground. It was a basement place. And it was it was almost the size of a football a football field uh, for CDs and records. And there there was a kid there I can't remember his name off the top of my head that it, he knew every damn record and CD, who played on it, who produced it. Uh, it. It was he he was he was an encyclopedia, uh, a computer of of music. How how are people finding you now? Is YouTube and and vehicles like YouTube and Bandcamp and Spotify uh, are those advantageous to to finding new bands, or or did we really lose something with the record store? I miss record stores, and yeah. I, and I hope I don't yeah. sound dated to to younger listeners. I mean, no, not at all. It was it was an experience because, you know, what, remember when I was a kid, yeah. there was no MTV, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have we didn't even have cell phones. Yeah. So, you know, I, when, if I went into a music store, a lot of times I'd be turned on to I remember getting turned on to Van Halen by this girl. It was like a neighbor. Yeah. And going and, and she played me Eruption. And it was so cool. And it was exciting. <laughs>
And then going to the record store and hearing like the first Ozzy record, Randy Rhodes and you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, you know, um, I, I was kind of like a well-known musician in my community. And mm-hmm, so the people at the mm-hmm. record store eventually knew who I was. And they'd be like, hey, have you heard this guitar player? Mm-hmm. And they, they turned me on to stuff that I didn't know about. And it was really exciting. Now, today with YouTube, absolutely. I mean, YouTube is there are pros and cons to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So with the band Impelitary, you got to be really careful. So if you just type in as a search query, Impelitary. Mm-hmm. you'll come up with our music videos like venom right right, right. face the enemy the stuff yeah. that are our new stuff right that our fans mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. that's a good way to be introduced to the band mm-hmm. the danger is if you put chris in front of that now you got stuff where look a lot of times guitar magazines or i'll do some podcast or whatever say hey, can you just play something you know in, in the maid's room of my house or whatever i keep a bunch of guitars and just practice right, right and i'm right. like all right sure you practice and you put this little video up right and then uh-huh. people get the, the the wrong idea thinking that's impelitary, you know? Yeah, it's like, yeah. no. And so there's that danger of you got to be careful of what you're when you're searching for us, right? Because, you know, again, impelitary, we're very blessed. I mean, yeah. especially the most recent shows we've done, we played in front of as many people as 30,000 people at our show. So a lot of times, even with me, Chris, a lot of times in the past, I used to do like, for my endorses, I endorse guitar companies. They'd say, Hey, can you come in and do like a, a clinic for our dealers? Mm-hmm. So you go into this mm-hmm. little room and play in front of, you know, a hundred people or whatever. And some kid of course is going to YouTube it, you know, put the video up and there it goes up and people, you know, might get that wrong impression of like, Oh, this is the band. <laughs> Those are the pros and cons I find, but YouTube it's, it's, it, it is wonderful that you are accessible to people all over the world. But, but YouTube has, has that search algorithm. That it tries to predict what you will like, or it tries to it tries to offer you a selection of of things that it thinks you will like. You guys spend a lot of time on album covers. A lot of artists do. Those are very very important, and and I think that sells uh, sells records and, and albums as much as as that as as hearing the the music we have won awards for our album covers if you look at the cover of we did a record called grin and barrett Uh right which is part of the Uh anthology just just google grin and barrett the the image Uh, an artist named hugh syme did that and that's a real contraption that's a real clown it's terrifying looking hugh did (laughs) that all the covers are at least the big covers for the band rush he worked with everybody as a matter of fact hugh told me i i think maybe maybe he was embellishing or whatever, but I remember he told me Gene Simmons saw the cover of, of yeah. the Brennan Barrett record and he wanted it. And we we're like, no, not a chance. Now we paid for that. That's ours. But it's, it's, and it really speaks volume of how much effort we put into the artwork. Mm-hmm. And then years later, you know, like answer to the master and screaming symphony, mm-hmm. you know, we we've gotten a lot of accolades in the countries. Those records got released because kids love yeah. that artwork. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna end I'm gonna end here because I know I know you want to get on with your Sunday here uh, and your time is very precious and and thank you again for for taking the time here I I know you're familiar with with the the term uh, and the concept of of duende for for our listeners who don't it's it's typically applied to to dance um, but they'll recognize the feeling it's uh, and and Latin dance uh, most specifically. It's that upwelling of raw emotion. I get it at at listening to music where where I I, I get a rush of emotion. And and I got that at several places in in the song Holy Man, which is also uh, on the compilation. 
uh, that convergence of synergy and uh, an energy between the guitar, the rhythm, and the keyboards is just exceptional. How did that song come together for you? I don't remember. I mean, because it's been years. It's been years yeah, ago. Yeah. I don't remember what the the inspiration was. I can tell you when I write music, what happens to me. And, and forgive me if I sound a little crazy. No, no. You know, I I'm always playing my guitar. I'm working on my technique. A lot of times, mm-hmm. I'm you know mm-hmm. just shredding. You know, just working on muscle memory. And a lot of times, I fall or stumble into something and I'll, I'll be playing. I go, Oh my God, what was that? What was that? Oh my God. I got to try to do that again. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden it's as if some higher power spirit, God, something channels through me and all of a sudden starts leading me. And all of a sudden my hands are playing, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure why they're just, mm-hmm. they're, it, I just all of a sudden seem like I'm getting pulled on this adventure, this journey. And, and I know this sounds crazy to a lot of people, but it's true. You know, we've explored that. Yeah, no, we've explored that with with visual artists, sculptures, musicians, playwrights, authors. I I have a number of books in print. And I always give this example. If if I'm writing a character and I realize that character fully, I may want them to go through through the door on the left and they'll go, no, I'm going through the door on the right. So my job as an author is to keep them connected and, and going sort of in the direction I want them to get to at the end of the book. But if I've created that character properly, then then they have their own intention. I don't know where that comes from. I've, I've asked a thousand different artists in, in a thousand different styles and, and, and genres, and each of them has a very different thing it, it, they're tapping into into something universal um that is outside of themselves or tapping into something deep and and intimate within themselves uh, a mixture of both a, a thousand different things I, I, so i i just wanted to i just wanted to to back you up on on that thought it's brilliant yeah, it is. I mean, it's. I literally sometimes feel like I'm this vehicle for a higher power, uh-huh. right? That just uh-huh. channels its energy through me, yeah. and all of a sudden, before I know it, the riff comes. I I've got the verse, the pre-chorus, the chorus. Yeah. All of a sudden, we're into bridge. All of a sudden, I'm into the solo, and before you know it, the composition's complete. And you're like, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> you know, sometimes you feel like, is it God or the devil channeling through me? You know, I mean, it's uh-huh. like. 
it, it's just it, it's weird. I, I can't yeah. explain it. I mean, I prefer it to be God going through me, not into the devil, dude. <laughs> but you know, but you know, it, it's it, it's remarkable. And, yeah, and you know, it's funny. Yeah. I, I have had this experience on stage. And I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. We've been on stage, and, and let's just say you're playing in front of ten thousand people, right? Mm-hmm. And and you and it comes to the solo, and all of a sudden it's something really complex, right? And all of a sudden my mind will wander, and you know you're thinking about something stupid like, "Hey, when we left the house tonight, honey, did you shut off the lights?" You know, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And before you know it, you're through the song and you play it perfect. And you're like, "Oh my God, how the hell? What, what just <laughs> happened?" I just, you know, you kind of just your mind deviated it went to another place but yet whatever that 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 higher power whatever that energy that thing is that comes through me there's there's a skill set that comes along with that you have to be you have to be a proper antenna and uh and, and training and background and history and knowledge and uh and practice 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 is uh it makes makes that antenna um the perfect vehicle for for just what you're talking about yeah and and again we're, we're speaking on the music side you know rob rock too just i'll, I'll leave it here mm-hmm. you know rob rock i mean both rob and i, I mean we're personally we're christians right but the band is not a christian band i don't mm-hmm. it's it's there's been a fallacy of that which is mm-hmm. just not true mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. our drummers in the past jewish right you know i mean so the band has never been a christian band but rob and i are and and rob what's really cool is when he writes lyrically he writes in double meanings Mm -hmm. so he's never going to preach but at the same time i love where he goes right he might be in the book of revelations and what cooler source i mean look in metal you want us to get dark on you and get and terrify (laughs) you i mean there's nothing cooler than diving in that bar going into revelations and you know you'll start to get some pretty heavy content so rob will pull from that but at the same time then he'll write about you know you know, not like we're doing sex, drugs and rock and roll, but it'll certainly go in that thing of part of pop culture. And, you know, when we find stuff that's just stupidity, you know, like the Kardashian, you know, that whole thing, we may write and make fun of it, you know. So but that's that, kind of like we channel, you know, that that all makes that all makes perfect sense with uh, with with your your incredible rendition of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. I was going to ask you about about that because it's it's ultimately a song of hope. actually a fluke when we did stand in line i'll never forget our drummer pat torpy at the time god rest his soul uh-huh. pat and i were at the record plant which is a very famous studio in los angeles california in, in that period of time uh-huh. and we were two songs short of completing stand in line you needed a certain amount of playability and i was like oh my god 
we don't have anything else written. <laughs> and, and I remember telling Pat years earlier, I saw this guitar player. His name was Jay Johnson. He was like a local hero on the East mm-hmm. Coast. Mm-hmm. He had a band called Cryer and he used to do a version of it. And I don't know if he got it because Richie Blackmore did it first, right? Did mm-hmm. kind of did his kind of version of it. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling Pat about it going, oh my God, I remember seeing this and it was awesome. And we literally got to work right there and probably within three or four hours, it was done, recorded, finished. Chuck Wright came in, played bass on it. And, you know, before we knew it, the song was finished. Now we had to impeliterize it. Is that a word? <laughs> we had to, <laughs> it is now. We had to make it impeliterary. So, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I created all the crazy shredding stuff. And, but I will tell you the one thing as I'm older now, mature, mm-hmm. I wish I would have done I wish I would have played the melody with a slide guitar because the melody it's, it's really structured for a vocal, for a voice. Yeah. And it moves too quickly to play without a slide, right. To try to really get a nice vibrato in it. So I was always uncomfortable about that part of it, but you know, the shredding, the little shredder in me, you know, that part, I was like, I always loved that, but you know, it's crazy. You it probably better way for people to do it is just, just go on YouTube and watch it. Uh If you, uh, if you put a search query impelitary, Busan Rock Festival, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Uh-huh. We played that. And the one song the the concert promoter asked us to make certain we played was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And I'll never forget, we went to that show and our bass player couldn't couldn't come because of visa issues. So Rudy Sarzo, okay. right, from Ozzy Whitesnake, mm-hmm. he actually came in and played with us. He learned all the music, rehearsed with us for like a week or two. Wow. We went over there and played it. And I will never forget, we played that song. And I think, something like 30,000 people came to see us. And you can see at the end of that video footage, the camera turns around. It goes from the stage and, and pans out to the audience. Hmm. And it was literally like 30,000 people singing that melody, crying, wow. you know? And, and wow. it was like, oh my God, did we touch a nerve? We touched, we, we struck a chord, we something with that song in Asia. It's and such a universal song, and, uh, and and I'm I'm definitely going to check that out. Chris Impelitary's guitar virtuosity is legendary. The band's new 3D seat, new three, the band's new three CD. Oh, that was a little hard for me to say. Uh, see, I told you that we could get through this without uh, comparing you to Malmsteen. By the way, uh, the band's <laughs> new three CD compilation, "Wake the Beast: The Impelitary uh, Anthology," is a must-have. The website is impelitary.net. I'll post that in the notes below. Chris, thank you so much, man. This was wonderful. It was my honor, my pleasure. And you have great questions. I mean, it's, I always enjoy going on an intellectual journey. Kind of, it almost reminds me of self-exploration. Yeah. Because you know, there are times yeah. you ask questions that I have to think really hard about. And I'm like, God, how, how do I answer this? Because I have to give it some in-depth thought. You guys work so damn hard at what you do that, the very least that I can do is have 
something interesting to say about about your work and offer you a, a, a an interesting an interesting group of questions i guess to to respond to that that gives not only you some interest but tells something about you uh to our audience that that they hopefully uh won't get anywhere else or sadly won't get anywhere else but very strong journalism and i and you know it's funny i might be in a, a heavy metal band but i do have an mba so i'm not i'm not you know uneducated right so <laughs> and so i appreciate that the, the, you know the depth of your questions were fantastic so thank you thanks so much chris it was it was an absolute honor hope i get a chance to talk to you again one of these days oh we shall all right and my sincere thanks to chris and Pelletieri for taking the time today Uh, If you like this program, please hit the subscribe button for future notifications on all of our programs. For Playtime, I'm W.C. Turk. 